This is the Mark Dolan Way. Top tips for mind, body and soul. Some great life hacks and my favourite products of the week. This show is available on all podcast platforms, but do subscribe to the Mark Dolan YouTube channel where you can see the show every week. Enjoy. Welcome to the show. As always, we will have my favorite product of the week. We will have my inspirational message that will help you have a happier, healthier and more successful life. Plus some cracking life hacks as well. Some great tricks with which to make your life more convenient and more fun. Let's kick off with a very good book called The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott Peck. Uh, It's one of the standout self-help books of the 20th century. And really, all you need from that book is the first sentence. The first three words of that book are as follows. Life is difficult. And okay, the whole book is excellent. It talks about the tools with which to have a happy life. He talks about discipline. He talks about faith, whatever that faith may be. Whoever your God may be, maybe it's nature, higher power spirituality. Um, There's all of that. But really, it's that first sentence, life is difficult. And he points out in the book that a lot of the reason why we have difficulties in life or why why, um, we struggle is because we have expectations that life is not difficult. You know, everything should be easy. I should be able to pay my bills. My relationship should be successful. I should be slimmer. Um, I should be richer shoulda, woulda, coulda. Um, The word should is a disastrous word. It's incredibly negative and it's steeped in the expectation that life is not difficult. Uh, So people battle with that reality every day and it's the source of our problems and it's the source of mental health issues and also it's the barrier to actually getting anything done and changing your life. So you've got to flip it. You've just got to work on the basis, the very foundation of your life, the original building block. Okay, step A is life is difficult. Life is difficult. Life is difficult as a flatline, basic, fundamental. Okay, that is it. That is sentence number one of the book and of your life. Wake up every morning. And how's that for a mantra? Life is difficult, right? Just look in the mirror. Tell yourself 10 times life is difficult. Now, what's magical about that is that then when you get a parking ticket or a horrific tax bill or your partner leaves you or a medical diagnosis or a family member or a friend is in trouble, something terrible happens to them or somebody looks at you funny on the bus, you go, yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Life is difficult. This is not, you know, I haven't done anything wrong. The problem you've got, if you don't base your life on the fact that it's difficult, if you base your life on the fact that it should be great and that it should be easy, then you will always blame yourself for things that go wrong. And yes, of course, we have a big role in how our lives pan out. Absolutely. Uh, but the the idea that life is easy and the, that these things shouldn't be happening to us creates a victim mentality, which is very self-perpetuating. Because the problem with the victim mentality is it works against you taking responsibility for your life. 
It's just, yeah, these bad things happen because I am a victim and I'm unlucky. And that's the story of my life. That is the narrative. That's who I am. Bad stuff happens to me. Now, we all know people who who are like that. Their life is a kind of unending soap opera of disaster. And they almost seem quite attached to the doom and gloom. So it's the kind of negative mindset. And if you work on that basis that, you know, everything's just uh, terrible and there's nothing I can do about it, then you will perpetuate that. So what you do is you work on the basis that life is difficult. And it means that when a problem comes along, your your approach to it is not actually negative. Your your approach to it is is positive because you're like, yeah, life is difficult. So look, a difficult thing just happened. Um, it's a you're not surprised. And you address it and you deal with it and you accept it, you know, and it's the same basic fact as the sun rises in the east and it sets in the west and no one challenges that. And therefore you work with what you're given. And so thinking that life is difficult, right? The headline is it might seem negative, but it's not. It's really, really positive. And this ties in with parenting, but it actually it fits in with all aspects of, of, of life, which is that many people... When they raise their kids, they try to protect their kids from the fact that life is difficult, right? They try to insulate their kids. And M. Scott Peck in this book, he points out that so many of life's issues, so many of life's problems are related to the avoidance of pain. All right. So whether that's protecting your kids from um, the pain of of not winning a running race at school. It's like, oh, you did well. We'll give you a medal anyway, even though you came 50th. All right, let the kid come last in the race. Let the kid not be happy about that. Let the kid live with the reality that they came last and maybe next year they'll be second from last and build from there. Um, So you don't do your kids any favours by insulating them from the fact that life is difficult. In fact, I tell my kids all the time that life is difficult and that that is the basis of it. And then they know that when something bad happens at school, They didn't do something wrong. It's not an issue with them that they're a crap person, that they're not good enough, that they're a failure, that this always happens to them. No, 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 no. It's life, not them. Okay, so if things don't work out for you, that's not you, baby. It's not you. It's life. It is life. And honestly, it's so bloody liberating. And um, so in this book, he talks also a lot about it's not just parenting, but it's it's you as well, that the avoidance of pain, the avoidance of accepting that life is difficult creates so many problems in your life because you don't solve anything. You don't move forward. You're like a hostage to fortune. You're on this emotional roller coaster and you're going to just let life take you where it wants to take you. Whereas if you say life is difficult and you understand that, then you own the whole thing. And he just talks about the fact that the avoidance of discomfort, the avoidance of pain sets us back. Because what it is, obviously, if you avoid things that are going to be painful, then you don't do anything that could be great, um, such as being at a party and you spot someone at the party who you think is just amazing and gorgeous or whatever. Uh, Well, if you avoid the pain of rejection, you're not going to go and say hi. Well, what about you risk rejection, risk the pain, go over there, right? And you say, hi, how are you? Uh, My name is Mark. Good party, isn't it? What's your favourite flavour of crisps? Which I think you'll agree is the ultimate chat up line. If that doesn't get you sex, nothing will. And so what's the worst going to happen, right? The worst is going to happen is they're going to say to you, um, bugger off. 
uh, you're the least interesting and ugliest human I've ever seen. Now, at that point, right, you've already won. Because if they've said that, they weren't a very nice person. So you probably don't want to pursue a relationship and devote a chunk of your life to somebody that would say that to someone else. So A, they've actually filtered themselves out of your life and done you a massive favor, even though they're gorgeous. That's the worst case scenario. Um, the middle case scenario is that you have a good chat about what your favorite crisps are and maybe they become a friend or an acquaintance. You know, it didn't quite happen romantically, but I'm really glad I went up and said hi to that person because I asked them about crisps. Um, and and now we kind of meet up for beers every every few months. And it's just a, a good person in my life. Right. So that's already good, isn't it? You've gained a friend um, and you've had a debate about what the best flavor of crisps are. What is the best flavor of crisps, by the way? I think it's got to be cheese and onion, hasn't it? Surely. Uh, or salt and vinegar. Oh, it's so it is such a close run thing. Salt and vinegar versus the cheese and onion. That is like, who do you prefer, Lennon or McCartney? That is marginal. It's marginal. But you've had a chat about crisps. Can I just say that I think ready salted, which if you're listening outside of the UK is basically just salted crisps. I find them a bit plain. I'm not sure I, you can taste too much of the potato. I think you need, it needs that um, flavoring. But I'm going to give it to, I think crisp wise, I'm going to give it to cheese and onion. But yeah, so the, the middle case scenario is that, that, that perhaps, you know, you just had a nice chat with this person, maybe even made a friend. But what's the best case scenario? Well, the best case scenario is that you went over there. You risked having them tell you to bugger off. But you get chatting about crisps. Uh, they agree with you that cheese and onion are the best. And there's a lot of laughter and a talk for hours. The party ends. At the end of the party, they say, hey, listen, give me your number. Let's Let's meet again. You then get to know that person. You fall in love. And you spend the rest of your lives together. Now, that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't risked going over and saying hi. But the calculation you'll have made by going and saying hi is that life is difficult and it's difficult to go and say hi to this person. And it's going to be difficult if they tell me to bugger off. You, you accept that. It's all built in. So you go over to them in the party and you know it's like this could just go so badly because that's life. And if they do tell me to bugger off, it won't be me. It will be life. That's it. I had an absolute breakthrough a few years ago because I'm a broadcaster and a comedian and a writer and a lover and a fighter. And I, any comedian will tell you that the hardest gigs are corporate gigs, corporate events. Because normally when you do a comedy show, if you're in a, a theatre or a comedy club, it's purpose built, isn't it? The idea of the evening is people go there, they've bought a ticket, they've paid to laugh. So when you go on stage, they want you to be successful. They want you to be funny. Of course, you're not always, but they're on your side. They want this to work just as much as you do. Corporate events are different. This is when a company will organise an awards night or um, some kind of you know, networking event. They get all the employees together of the company. And maybe it'll be in a hotel somewhere, big, big venue. Lots of problems with that. First of all, the venue itself is never or very often it's it's not optimal for comedy. So you might be, for example, I've done comedy events, at corporate events. I've done comedy at corporate events where you're on stage. There's a massive empty dance floor in front of you and then the tables. So your audience are like 10 metres away. 
horrific, right? They're miles away. You're on the stage, dance floor, then the audience. Any comedian will tell you that's a disaster. You need the you need to be right in their faces, right up against them. What does every comedy club look like? It's rows of seats, then comedian. Same with theatres, right? Full theatre, rows of seats, comedian on stage. What? One, two metres away from the front row? That's that's there for a reason. So comedy, uh, corporate events at comedy clubs are, are often you know, not in a great environment. The microphone can be weird. It's a kind of a lip microphone, like one of those Madonna microphones or something on your lapel. Or the guy or the woman doing sound hasn't quite got the hang of it because that's not what they do for a living. You get introduced very badly by the CEO who normally either oversells you and says this guy's the funniest thing ever. And, and then the audience are like, well, we'll see about that, which, you know, comedy is all about the undersell. Um, I've been at a corporate event where the guy getting me on asked for a minute's silence about a deceased colleague who they all loved who's no longer with us and it was like let's have let's have a minute silence for Barry we did that then a round of applause and then okay time now for the comedy can you imagine following that so these corporate events are tricky also they've been very often drinking all day and they're more interested in each other because it's people who work for a company and they're out on the beers and therefore I mean there's nothing nicer is there than than socializing and drinking with colleagues because normally when you work you've got the stress of the job and you've got the office and you've got the boss and you've got management and politics you go out for a couple of drinks or a bite to eat with colleagues it's just nice isn't it so they're very happy with each other they don't really need a comedian so they're on round tables which is also terrible for comedy they're all chatting to each other they're all pouring each other wine meanwhile you're at the front trying to tell jokes so what happened is uh, i would be doing these gigs and i've been doing these corporate events for many years and when I started doing them, I got very, very insecure because I was basically quite often, sometimes they'd go well, sometimes they'd go badly. But when they went badly, I'm just like, I had the voice in my head. You're not good enough. You're rubbish. Uh, you are not supposed to be a comedian. You've, you know, you're in the wrong business. L last night was a disaster. They didn't laugh. And you just feel like, yeah, it's all me, me, me. I'd forgotten the golden rule that life is difficult, right? And that sometimes you have a hard day at the office. And that's what it was. The problem with those corporate events that weren't going well, it was life, not me. Because I'd written the jokes, I'd done my preparation, but they weren't laughing. Why? Well, because they were three miles away. The microphone didn't work and they've gone through the list of dead colleagues before you, they got you on, you know. But you don't think like that if your expectations are that it should be easy and it should be going well. So I go to those corporate events now in the knowledge that it could be an absolute nightmare and that's built in. And if it's a nightmare, I will not blame myself. Okay, I'll always try to do maximum preparation, take full responsibility. But above and beyond that, it's out of my hands, right? I've written the material. I've read some stuff about the company. I've done some specific tailored material for them. And I still died on my backside. Shit happens. At that point, you put the invoice in and um, put it down to the experience. But what, what unlocked it for me, that particular thing, was, and I say this now to anyone that will listen, which is that those corporate events are difficult not because I lack talent or I lack skills. They're difficult because they're difficult. And that's it. If you're in the Olympics and you're doing the 100 metres and you want to be faster than everyone else, but you come forth 
that's not because you're not good enough and you didn't prepare enough. It's because that's really hard. So anything that's not working out for you, okay, look at your preparation, look what you can can do to control it and improve the outcome. But a lot of it will be that if it's hard for you, it's hard for everyone. Okay, let me repeat that. If it's hard for you, if you're finding something difficult, that's because it's difficult. And too many good people, if they find something difficult, they blame themselves and they're insecure and then they implode. They basically just cancel themselves, beat themselves up. You've got the voice in your head. You're not good enough. You're rubbish. Uh, If it's difficult, it's because it's difficult. It's not because of you. And the interesting thing about self-confident people is that they understand that and they crack on and they make all the money and they're the ones that take over the world. Right. Super self-confident, very often more self more, more that very often the really talented people don't do well because they are so hard on themselves and they don't understand that if they've had a difficult day at the office, um, it's because it's difficult. Instead, they blame themselves and then they move backwards. So there you go. Uh, that is it. Um, a few things um, I'd love to talk to you about. Well, I've got a very quick health one if you want absolutely transformative. Now, can I tell you that anything health-wise that I share with you, I am not a doctor. I know nothing. I'm unqualified. So if you're going to change your lifestyle or your diet or anything health-wise, check with your GP, okay? Speak to your medical practitioner. All I'm giving you here is something that worked for me, which is a game changer. Now, on a previous show, we know about low carb, which is uh, having far fewer carbohydrates and therefore losing weight that way. So do go back to that previous episode um, for that information. Um, I do believe that was uh, episode one. Well, I've got a new one for you. It's called IF. Okay, it stands for intermittent fasting. And it's so simple and it ties in with low carbohydrate. And it's that magic hormone insulin. Insulin is the main fat storage hormone of the body. So what happens is that when insulin is raised, you store fat. When insulin is low, you burn fat. Intermittent fasting. Very simple. You only eat within a time window. So that means, for example, that you only eat from midday until 8 p.m. Now, what would that be? That would be an eight hour time window. That's what intermittent fasting is. So that means that from eight, you're not eating until midday the next day. So I'll take you through your day, which is you wake up at seven, eight, nine a.m. And you have something but no calories. So that could be water or a black coffee. And you just drink that and away you go. And you just power on through with no food, no calories until midday. At midday, you have your lunch. Now, because I'm a fan of low carb, I would say do not eat bread, rice, pasta, potatoes, starchy vegetables, sugar. Uh, I'd be looking for protein, unlimited green vegetables. If you're going to have fruit, just make it berries. So let's say lunchtime, you know, so perhaps it's an omelette or scrambled eggs or avocado with some salmon and a big salad. You basically have lunch, right, or a late breakfast, and that's at midday. And you can eat, you can pretty much eat as much as you want, as much as you feel you need between midday and eight. So you've had your kind of lunch at 12, your first meal of the day, 
And then perhaps you're a bit peckish at three. You may not be, by the way, but if you are, then, you know, have a handful of um, cashew nuts or um, or a soup or something else. And then you have your dinner at six, seven or eight o'clock. Right. So you've actually had you've had two two to three main meals. Right. You've had your your lunch, which is a good substantial meal, especially if you're hungry. And then something to tick you over mid afternoon and then your dinner at eight o'clock. You stop eating. Uh, the reason why this is miraculous is because it means that you stop eating at eight. Let's say you go to bed at 11. That's a three hour gap between eating and going to sleep. You will have much better sleep. And the reason why is because you're not going to bed with a full stomach of food. You're not digesting. Sleep is supposed to be when you deboot, right? When your body completely relaxes and doesn't have any work to do. It's got to just rest and regenerate. So you don't want to be giving your body a job of work when you go to sleep. So if you stop eating at seven or eight and you go to bed at 11, then you've had three hours to digest the food. It means that you go to bed not stuffed, your body not having any work to do. But the other big thing is the insulin drops. Okay, so let's say by midnight, right, your insulin is flatlined because it's four hours since you ate. Your insulin has just got dropped right down. And when insulin is low, Okay, the fat cells open, your body gets energy from stored fat. Basically, you've got a beer belly, you've got love handles. The body starts eating itself and that's how you lose weight. Well, that insulin stays low throughout the night. You wake up in the morning, the insulin is zero. The insulin is flat. You have a black coffee, which will do nothing to your insulin, just flat. If you want to sweeten it, you can have erythritol, which contains no insulin response. Erythritol, a very natural sweetener. I recommend it. It's delicious. Or you can have stevia as well. So you still, if you want, you still got a sweet drink, but no calories and no insulin response. And it means that your insulin has been flat from 8 p.m. Well, not quite. You ate, but, you know, once you've digested the food, let's say it's midnight. By the time you go to bed, your insulin's coming down and it stays low for 12 hours. That's a long time to be in a low insulin state. And you will find those fat cells open, do it for a few weeks and you will get, you will lose weight. Okay. There you go. Intermittent fasting. Um, Tweak it for yourself. So for example, if you struggle in the morning not to eat, then fine, wake up, have breakfast at eight and just make the window 8am to 5pm perhaps. And then perhaps what you can do is you can just stretch it and you can 8.30, 9 o'clock, 9.30, just push that first meal back as far as you can. Um, so you can tweak it for yourself, but it's brilliant. And I'm a big fan of it. So there you go. Intermittent fasting. By the way, I think you will save money because you're eating less food. And I certainly feel better when I intermittent fast. There is another advantage of intermittent fasting and it's called autophagy. And what that means is that the body burns away old cells and it regenerates. So there you go. If you think about it, when you're not eating, your body is naturally just digesting the old stuff and clearing it out. It's very, it's a very, um, you know, the body loves to have a clear out. Don't forget that fasting is a very ancient tradition linked to many religions uh, for a reason. Like so many religious rules, it was related to public health. So, yeah, so fasting's great. Love it, love it, love it. What you mustn't do is that if you've got an eating disorder, you must get psychiatric and professional medical help. I do not want anyone listening to this podcast to suddenly start starving themselves. If you've got an eating disorder, I do not think that intermittent fasting is for you. OK, and in fact, I don't think any micromanaging of your diet. I think it's just professional 
help. Okay. Because that's very important. I have a duty of care to you. I love you all. I don't want anybody to get in trouble based upon any advice that you get from me. Um, Right. Any other tricks? Let's have a look. You want your life to be less complicated. A very simple life hack, uh, which is socks uh, or underwear. Now, I used to have all different socks, and you know the problem: you get odd socks, don't you? Where's the Where's the other pair of this? Where's the, I, I need the I need the matching sock, and I can't bear to wear odd socks. And then I have some socks that I prefer to have good socks and bad socks. And then I'd had like lucky socks. I had a pair of socks that had squirrels on. And I always had a good day when I had the squirrel socks. And one day I had a really important, important job ahead of me, a job, big, really important day professionally. And I couldn't find my squirrel socks. I was completely freaked out. So I didn't like to be a hostage to this, to the horror of having socks I liked, socks I didn't like, a hierarchy of sock. The good socks, the bad socks. How complicated is that? Is there anything worse than your day when you're wearing the socks you don't love? You're like, oh, I'm going to wear the bad socks that I just don't enjoy. That's a downer, isn't it? You don't need that. Life is hard enough as it is because, as you know, life is difficult. So what do you do? Very, very simple. You take all the socks that you don't like and you bring them to a charity shop or as the Americans would call them, a thrift store. Uh, The reason why is because many charity shops will accept um, fabrics. Okay, so they won't sell the socks, but they can recycle that cotton Um, and they're happy to have it, many of them. So quite a while ago, I took all the socks I don't love and it was just time to move on, right? I recycled them at the charity shop. I then went to an English shop, British shop called Marks and Spencer, but other other stores are available. And they had these five packs of blue socks. And I don't know what they were price-wise, but I could humbly suggest 10 pounds. That's for five socks. That's not bad, is it? Two quid per pair of socks. And they're lovely. The nice mix of predominantly cotton, but with a bit of a bit of lycra in there, a bit of stretch, a bit of polyester for durability and um, for, for uh, as I say, for um, elasticity, for a bit of stretch. Anyway, really good socks, decent value. They last. And I bought plenty of these. How many did I get? It was a five pack. I think I bought four packs, right? But that that is like, that's many years of sock wearing that lies ahead. And now it's amazing because I just, I open my drawer in the morning and I've just got only blue socks. So there's no, you can't lose one. There's no odd socks. They're all the same. It's very consistent. You don't have the lucky socks. They're all lucky or they're all unlucky, depending on what way you look at it. Um, they age at a similar rate because you just make the, keep the turnover going. You, you know, you don't, what I do is unwrap, I, I basically open all of them, put them in the sock drawer. I don't have a sock drawer. It's a, it's a drawer with a lot of stuff in it, including socks. Um, so yeah, just have one type of sock. I'd recommend the same for underwear. So I was in Austria and I found these amazingly cheap underpants. And I think it was a kind of one of those bulk buy, buy to get one free type thing or reduced in some way. So I, I got loads of those. And um, now I just have one type of underpant. And again, I don't have the lucky or the unlucky underpants. I like them all. They're all the same. Don't have to make a decision. And by the way, this is very much the habit of high achieving, successful people. Steve Jobs was famous for having 10 pairs of the same jeans. I think they were Levi's and he had his favorite sneakers and he had his roll neck jumper of which he had a gazillion. Mark Zuckerberg, the same, just one outfit. Now, I wouldn't go that far because I think it's nice to have variety. I like different clothes. 
But uh, it tells you their mentality, which is that Zuckerberg, Steve Jobs, they want to wake up in the morning. They want to think about more important things than what am I wearing? So Zuckerberg's just got 100 hoodies all the same, just puts it on and he's now a billionaire. So keep it simple. Keep your life uncomplicated, clothing wise, with the basics, just uniform. Same, same, same. That works for me. Some other things. Would you like to have people take you more seriously? Then I have a top tip and it comes from Jordan Peterson, who is a very clever thinker, psychologist, not psychiatrist, I think, but basically an expert on the human mind and the human condition, human emotions. Jordan Peterson, a controversial figure in some circles. And but an interesting guy, always worth listening to, in my humble opinion. And he talks about how you should say less. So if you're in a meeting, okay, have the points that you're going to make and stick to those and do not waffle on. Now, you will consider me guilty of terrible hypocrisy because this whole podcast is me waffling on. I beg your pardon. Well, it's a podcast. I mean, if I didn't talk, we'd have a problem, wouldn't we? But if you're in a meeting, if you're on a date, if you're out with your friends, um, less is more, you know, just less is more, especially in a professional environment. You're talking to the boss and it's about your pay rise or it's about an issue at work and you go, boss, I'm delivering the numbers. I'm ambitious for future growth and you need to recognise that in my pay packet. How long did that take? That was 15 seconds. Rather than, hey, boss, I joined the company in 1972, and then three years later, this happened, and then that happened, and, you know, shaggy dog story, my grandma died, and the dog ate my homework. People are busy. So if there's any important thing that you need to do in your life, whether it's with a colleague or even in a relationship or anything else, um, succinct. And Peterson says the reason why is because people that say less have more power. And actually, I've mentioned Steve Jobs. If you listen to Steve Jobs, uh, any of his um, public speaking, you know, product launches, all of that, it was all quite succinct. It was quite well thought through. Um, there's a very famous video of him introducing the iPhone for the first time. And he said, I've got a device. Oh, sorry, I've got three devices. I've got three devices. Um, I've got a an internet search device. I've got a music player. And I've got a phone. Those are three products, right? Except, and then this big thing comes on the screen, except, except it's one product and we're calling it iPhone, right? So that is the mic drop moment, isn't it? Again, that's, that is a 25 second description of a device, the iPhone, that would change the world. And he's explained it in 25 seconds. I've got an internet search device. I've got a music player. I've got a phone. And it's all one device and we're calling it iPhone. That's 10 seconds for a device that changed the world. So where possible, boil things down, make them succinct, whether it's in a meeting, maybe a relationship issue as well. You're talking to your partner, friends, uh, less is more. And I don't want you to go around your life being paranoid and editing yourself. If, you know, if you're out with friends, you know, you're having a great time, you just chat, chat, chat and let it all hang out. But if there's any important thing where messaging is key, where you want something from someone, uh, perhaps you want to change their mind about something or get something from them, then you will have inherent power if you cut to the chase and you don't waffle on. How do you do that? You decide in advance 
what you're going to say. So if it's a meeting with the boss, um, just write down some bullet points. Maybe bring those bullet points into the meeting. Say, boss, do you mind if I consult my bullet points? But either way, less is more, and that gives you power. People that talk endlessly have less power. People that talk less have more power. And of course, you know, the extreme version of that is people at parties and people at meetings that are silent. Right? They've got the ultimate power. It's like, what, is, what does Barry think? Look at him brooding over there in the corner. And then when Barry finally speaks, everyone listens. You're welcome. Well, we are approaching the conclusion of this show. So many things I could tell you about. So many more things. Um, let me give you my product of the week. And it's the Apple AirTag. Apple have had a lot of publicity today, haven't they? They're very lucky. I do hope they send me a lovely big box of Apple freebies. Good luck with that. Um, the Apple AirTag. It's very good. Um, this is this show is a podcast. Uh, however, if you're watching, um, I will show you an AirTag. And it's basically a disc. It's a white disc which is white on one side. Um, it has a sort of polished plastic feel to it. And then on the other side is metallic with the Apple logo. Inside is a disc battery, one of those little normal batteries, LR44 or whatever it's called. And that battery lasts about a year and you can replace that. But you don't have to go to Apple for the battery. You basically unscrew the device. You can remove the battery and you put a new battery in and it's uh, that battery would be quite cheap, maybe a pound or two pounds to replace in the last year, which is really good because I don't like products which are obsolete when the battery stops working, which is too many products these days. So the battery is replaceable. It's a tiny disc. It's very light. It's about the size of a coin. It's thicker than a coin, but about the same footprint. And it contains a GPS device in it. <clears throat> and what it means is that you can track anything that it's attached to. So for example, you can have a key ring and on the key ring, you put your Apple AirTag and there are key rings for the AirTag. Do not go to Apple because they will charge you 35 pounds for a key ring. But if you go online, you can get a key ring for a pound or two pounds or maybe a four pack for a fiver. And the AirTag, which is this little disc, goes onto your keys and if you lose your keys, you can basically get your phone out or go online and you can ring your keys. What will happen is you go online or you go on your phone and it will tell you where your keys are because your keys are attached to the AirTag, which is a GPS device. So it gives you a location for whatever the AirTag is attached to. And so um, I've got it on my keys and I've got it on my wallet. OK, so again, I'll just describe I've got a red wallet here and you'll see that uh, white circle in the middle is an air tag which is attached to my wallet. And it means my wallet is live. My wallet is on the Internet. And if I can't find it, I go online and I send a signal to the air tag and the air tag goes beep, 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 beep. And I'm like, oh, I can hear it. It's, it's fallen behind the sofa. Spectacular. Now. There is one issue, which is, let's say you lose your wallet in a field. Okay, At that point, you will not know where your wallet is because you call it and it's out of range because it's GPS only. But it doesn't have like its own Internet signal. It's just it's searchable. It's findable. But you can't actually call it when it's out, when there's no Internet, there's no Wi-Fi. 
So you're like, well, what do you do then? Well, it's really clever because first of all, it will give you the last known location and that might be near the field. You're like, oh yeah, it's, 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 it's where I, I, I was sunbathing. And so that's enough of a clue that you go back to the field and at least search around in the field. So it'll give you the, the, the last location when it was online. But even if it's offline, if somebody with an iPhone walks past your lost wallet, it updates the location. OK, so in this field, let's say that somebody walks past with their dog. They've got an iPhone in their pocket. The iPhone will connect with the AirTag without the person who owns the iPhone knowing anything about this. And it will, when next time you search for your AirTag, it'll go, oh, your AirTag is exactly here in the middle of this field in this particular place. And then you go off, you go off and you find it. And that is really, really brilliant. Um, so that's the Apple AirTag. It is not cheap. I believe it's £30. So think carefully before that purchase. But I would argue it's worth the money because it could save you a fortune. So how much does it cost to replace a key? A lot. So let's say you've got your car key on there. If you lose your car key, that can be two, three hundred pounds to replace. If it's like the main dealer, that's a fortune. Uh, what if you lose your keys and you've got to change the locks? That's hundreds and hundreds of pounds plus the inconvenience, plus this, plus that, plus, by the way, security issues. Do you want somebody going around with your keys? So I think for 30 quid, it's worth it that you can always find your keys. They can be located. And also just the convenience that, I mean, I don't know about you, but I spend my whole life looking for things at home, which are actually in the building where I live. I know they're in the building, building but I can't find where they are. So for example, uh, in the morning, I like to wear shorts. Okay, I'm, 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 I like to start the day in shorts. And then if I'm going out to work or going and meeting someone, anything, uh, I get trousers on. But I start the day with shorts. And so sometimes I'll have like my wallet or my keys in the shorts. Then I change into the trousers. I'm about ready to go. I'm like, where's my wallet? Where's my keys? And I'm like, oh, it's in the other trousers. It's in the shorts. I wear different coats, different jackets. I got the wallet. Which jacket's the wallet in? Uh, and I'm just a very chaotic and careless person. So I'm always losing things at home. So I'm endlessly pinging my wallet, endlessly pinging my keys. It's a game changer. That is the Apple AirTag. Those are your key messages for the show. It's been a very juicy bumper episode today, hasn't it? I wonder, do I leave you with something? Would you like me to leave you with something? I think I will. I'm feeling generous today. The talented comedian and talk show host, Jay Leno, talks about showbiz, about how hard it is, how hard it is to stay at the top. And so this is his solution to success, which is don't fall in love with the hooker. Okay, now it's not my language, that's his. There you go. Uh, and what he means is, uh, obviously, if somebody is using, if somebody is paying for sex, okay, then uh, the person that's providing that service does not love them, is not in love with them. Um, it is a transaction. And therefore, it's very foolish for the customer to fall in love with the person providing a service which they're only doing for money. So don't fall in love with the hooker. OK, now this is a metaphor for any success, which is let's say you're going through a phase in your life where it's just going brilliantly and whatever. You're, you're going up the ranks professionally. Money's pouring in. Great stuff is happening. I don't know. You just said a flurry of good news. 
you can do no wrong. We do have times in our life, don't we, when you can do no wrong, right? It happens. Well, uh, enjoy that. Lovely. And actually, I think it ties in with my life is difficult philosophy, which is enjoy it, but understand it's not normal. And do not think this is normal, that everything's now really good in my life. Enjoy it. Understand it's finite. It's temporary. Do not consider this to be what your life is now, because then when things stop being good and it goes the other way and everything's bad, you'll be like, oh, no. And you just like implode and you lose, lose your self-confidence and you fall into the victim narrative again, back into the negative cycle. So don't fall in love with the hooker, right? When it's great, that's good. But be calm about it. Be dispassionate going, this is lovely, but these things, you know, I'll enjoy it. I'll enjoy it now. But I will not make any assumption that this is forever because I'll be honest, it isn't. Uh, all good things must come to an end. You look at it in the world of popular music where an artist can just do no wrong for like a certain window of their time. They try desperately to get successful. No one's interested. And then for five years, nonstop, endless success. Right. So Elton John, big fan of Elton John struggled. He struggled in the late 60s to get going. He wrote songs for other people. They were all disastrously unsuccessful. And then suddenly in 1970, it all exploded with your song and the Elton John album. Five years of uninterrupted success. And I think Elton John's lyricist Bernie Taupin said that basically Elton John could fart and it would sell a million copies, you know, and he as a lyricist could just basically do graffiti on a piece of paper and it goes to number one and that's lovely but then after that after that five-year window suddenly Elton John's not in fashion anymore and he can't get arrested and then he's doing like amazing work amazing songs which no one's buying why because his time has come and gone that particular window I mean Elton had amazing comebacks but that particular time you know it was all gravy it was all brilliant and then down the toilet for a while uh, what's smart about Elton John is he understood that Elton John did not fall in love with the hooker. Okay, because even though he had a great five years, when record sales started to come down, he said, um, I'm not surprised. He said, everybody has their time. And then he said, maybe I've had my time. And it was fun while it lasted. That's what he said. I mean, that's very wise. Now, in fairness to him, you know, he's then he's done it over and over again since then. But in the late 70s, he was philosophical. He's like, OK, five years, I smashed it. Great statistic. There was a point where Elton John in the 70s was responsible for 4% of record sales worldwide. That meant that every four records sold on the planet was an Elton John record. What, four out of 100. It's not bad, is it? But then, you know, yada yada. So um, what he did is that he accepted that his time in the spotlight, at least at that moment, was over. And he chilled out a bit. And spent some time on his personal life and didn't tour quite as much because he was bored of that. And he bought a football club, which was Watford, <clears throat> and just decided, OK, well, it's not happening at the moment. I'm not quite the global superstar I was, so I'll do some other stuff. And he bought Watford Football Club, achieved great success there, um, taking them up the leagues and everything. Completely different from the world of rock music. And, you know, that he just kept himself busy with that and a little bit of writing and a little bit of um, some gigs, but nothing, nothing too crazy. And then by the time he gets into the early 80s, the wave is coming back in his direction. And 83 is the Too Low for Zero album, which had I'm Still Standing. I guess that's why they call it the blues. Kiss the Bride, a brilliant, brilliant album. 
sold a gazillion copies and Elton's back. But that was after a seven, eight year window in which he was not hot. And he accepted that. He went with it. He's like, okay, I've had my time. Ride this one out. He understood that life is difficult. The record sales did not go down because he'd suddenly become a crap artist, suddenly become a crap songwriter. No, as a fan of Elton, I love his stuff when he wasn't popular. But it's because life was difficult, because his industry is difficult, like every industry. And the big thing for him is that he did not fall in love with the hooker. And there you go. That's the show. Uh, Listen, do subscribe so you get the show every time it drops. Lovely to have your company. It's been great chatting to you. And I can't wait to see you on the next edition. Bye for now.